0: It has been a joy to fellowship with the living Word of God this morning, our Savior Jesus Christ. And this, the Bible that you hold there in your hands and in your lap and on your devices is the living Word of God. It is far different than anything else you have looked upon, held, and taken in this week. The Word of God is quick and it is powerful. It is alive and it has authority and it has Power, a power not of this earth, greater than nuclear power, greater power than all the nuclear power of this entire universe, it is God's power and he wields it, he wields it with great craft and great care. This morning will you open your heart and open your ears to hear the word of God. Join with me in the book of Matthew to the last chapter of Matthew in chapter 28. The title of the message is Christ and the Conspiracy. And uh, the text of our message will be Matthew 28 verses 11 through 15. And I would like to begin actually in verse number one and we'll read until the end of verse 15. Please follow along as I read. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Thus says the word of God. Let's pray together. We continue in prayer. Show us Christ, the risen Lord. We can't see Him in the tomb. Show Him us by the living word this morning. Lord, magnify Him in our midst. Lift Him up. Bring we who are weary of heart, weary of the burden of sin, the bondage of temptations, and unbelief, and doubt, and despair. Let it be okay as we come into the presence of Jesus. Let's be like the Marys who came and worshipped at His feet. What joy must have been in Jesus' word to them greetings. What peace must have come from His mouth and into their hearts as He calmed them in that moment and received from them joyful worship. We too, like Mary's, come to the feet of Jesus and we worship Him. Father, train our hearts during this time to love Him more. Free us from distractions, from other things that are battling right now in our minds and hearts that would that would take our eyes away from Him. Let this moment be sanctified in our hearts, in our minds, so that we would only see the feet of Jesus. we will glorify Him and thank Him when that is done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Conspiracies have always been around. Conspiracies are about as old as Fig leaves. Adam came up with the first conspiracy and it was a terrible one. He blamed the wife that God gave him, and thereby Adam set the pattern for all devious lies that mankind would author and then hurl back at the Almighty God. From fig leaves to the prophecies of the flood to porridge and birthright, to kings of Israel, to idols in the temple of the Holy God, to murderous Herod, to conniving Caiaphas. Conspiracies have always been man's way of trying to solve, to salve his conscience from guilt and excuse away his, accountable, his accountability To his holy creator. We are so used to conspiracies. That we know where to find them in the world. Because we know what they look like. Because they're in our hearts first. After reading the Bible to this point. We ought not be surprised. That we come again to another conspiracy. To explain away the mercies. And grace of God. How appalling of a thought, by the way. But we have seen story after story, narrative, and account after account from Genesis to our book in, of the Bible in Matthew. We have been reading conspiracies and lies and deceptions, all of them geared to explain away, to dismiss the mercies and grace of God. Such is the unbelieving heart of man. The conspiracy in this passage is both heinous and hellish. For it is not just indirectly, but it is directly relevant to the very central work of grace accomplished by God in the world. Listen, men, mankind, men don't know what to do with God's grace. So they lie and deceive and evade the demands for a response to grace. And it isn't just mankind out there, outside the walls of the church, but you and I know exactly how to deceive ourselves from feeling the responsibility to respond to grace. We are uncomfortable with grace. And so that discomfort we will displace by making excuses, by living in self-deceit, by conspiring that there must be another way for me to live without grace. And so this might work. These fig leaves might work. But so often in our unbelief, we despise grace because grace implies that actually... Doesn't just imply, grace proclaims that we need grace and we don't want to be needy. So we come up with stories to convince ourselves we're not needy. Today we will see what lay at the core of the conspiracy to rid the world of the notion that we live under the rule of a good and gracious Lord and God. And this morning, let's look at this passage to see the evidences of a system of belief that would drive men to deny what was clearly right in front of them. What system of belief would drive men to deny something they saw? As a background note, we are not talking about two soldiers. Likely between the Friday sundown, the beginning of Sabbath on Friday evening, and Sunday morning, likely there have been 16 different soldiers, at least, who have been guarding the tomb. Likely at least four at a time scholars and theologians believe the number could even exceed 16 soldiers, or four at a time, by means of reason that there were 11 disciples. And so what would be four guarding soldiers against 11 determined disciples? So a reasonable and a conservative estimate of the soldiers guarding the tomb is not 2, is not 4, is not 16, but it is likely that what we are seeing in verse number 12 of the soldiers gathering together with religious leaders is likely, maybe even, at minimum they say, 50 soldiers. And could even be more. But we do not have just two soldiers here. We have a number of soldiers who are... Convinced that they don't see an empty tomb. How great is the deceit of the unbelieving heart. So listen, let's listen firstly. Let's listen firstly in on the council to commit conspiracy. And there's at least three lies and and three uh, falsehoods that this council contrives as they put together a story for the conspiracy. And the first truth we'll look at this morning, and by the way, if you have your bulletin, on the back side is some points and some of these truths. Feel free to make some notes, but just some of the ways in which we could put this passage together. But number one is, if God didn't fit into their theology, then He's the one who needs to change. You see, really for the disciples, firstly, including the faithful disciples like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and also the Marys, resurrection didn't fit into... Any followers of Jesus Christ into their theology, but it certainly didn't fit into even the most outlandish and superstitious pagan theology of the Roman guards. Resurrection, by the way, doesn't fit into anybody's theology unless God reveals it, unless God says it's so. And here so often is this truth lived out in our lives, even as followers of Jesus Christ. And that is that if God doesn't fit into who I believe He is, and if God doesn't fit into how I believe He works, then He's the one that needs to change. It must not be me who needs to change. The soldiers told the leaders what had taken place. They saw the angel. They saw the stone rolled away. They noticed that there was an empty tomb. And so they ran. There was no dereliction of duty. They were not asleep on the job. This would be even a capital offense by these soldiers. There was no dereliction of duty. There was no disciples stealing. They knew the disciples had not stolen the body. By the way, Matthew and others are faithful to record to us that the disciples were nowhere near the tomb and were defeated in their spirit. It was not a flattering picture of the disciples in these last chapters of all of the Gospels. Not only was it not a dereliction of duty and it was not the disciples stealing, there was no other events reported. It was just the facts. The soldiers came to the religious leaders, said an angel appeared, rolled away the the, the, the stone from the tomb. We noticed there was no body in the tomb and we're telling you this. Listen, they just reported the facts of what they saw. But the facts did not fit in with what the leaders had long held to as they had opposed Jesus throughout His ministry. The facts were inconvenient. Truth was inconvenient. You know, as we follow our Lord Jesus Christ, often we find that same spirit within us too, don't we? His truth isn't always convenient. The facts, even of the most wonderful tone and promises of Scripture, they don't fit in. We have to constantly be assured of God's love and care. The greatest part, I would believe, of the truth of God's Word is that that He would love us so much of you have sent his son, and yet we are so doubtful. it just doesn't fit in with our love for despair. You see, we are in love with our fears, I think, so often more than our love for God's promises. We are in more love often in our anxiety and our worry than we are. Convinced that God has immeasurable compassion. And so when we're assured of the word of His care, when we're assured of the word of His compassion, it just doesn't fit in with how we want to feel. And so if God doesn't fit into our theology, then He's the one that needs a change. And uh, as you can reason out, we certainly would never want God to be the one who changes. Well, secondly, what we find also in the falsehood of their counsel is that, that God didn't work according to their plan, then it must not have been His work at all. And they reason among themselves that this couldn't have been an act of God because God was going to do something different than raise this man from the dead. He was going to overthrow the government. He was going to overthrow the government um, from the oppression. The problems in these soldiers' minds and in these religious leaders' minds as well as in Peter's mind and the rest of the disciples was all that the problem is out there. The problem is with the forces of evil out there. The problem is with the wicked ones out there. It was all external. The problems are all external. And God, if You would just fix all of the external problems, then I will devote Myself. Then I will follow You. Then I will be convinced that you're a Savior worth believing in, but please fix everyone else before you fix me. The religious leaders had to deal with an empty tomb. And it didn't fit in. Because if there's an empty tomb, then Jesus is who He said He was. Remember, as His ministry was wrapping up just just weeks or months before He would go to the cross, the Pharisees were constantly contending with Jesus Christ, and really railing on Him and challenging Him. And He said, show us a sign that You are the Son of God. And Jesus said, I will show you a sign. I will show you a sign like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. So too, the Son of Man will be buried and He will raise again the third day. And that will be the sign. And listen, I can tell you that 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 was ringing in the ears of these religious leaders. Because they see an empty tomb And the soldiers are saying, there is no explanation. It must be God. But that must mean that if He is risen from the grave, then I need Him in my life. He is everything who He said He was. And if He is everything who He said He was, I am everything who He said I am too. And Matthew started off his book by telling us that Jesus told the Pharisees and the religious leaders that the physician does not come to heal the well, but the sick. And if Jesus is risen from the grave, that means he is who he says he was. It also means that he's true in telling me who I am. And friend, here this morning, if you're a person here who has not placed your faith In Jesus Christ, Jesus says who you are, you are a lost person. You're a lost sheep. But I want to flip that coin and when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ forsaking your sin, believer this morning, you are a found sheep. And Jesus says that. And so you are who he says you are. So there's two types of people who Jesus says, are in this world. Those who are lost and those who are found. And there are many other descriptions, by the way. Those are just some, but they show the dichotomy of humanity. And it's all based upon what you do with the empty tomb. And so if God doesn't work according to my plan, then it must not have been his work, or it must not have been as wise as, as one would think. The thirdly, the third false said that the council had corroborated on and collaborated on. If God did not work without my permission, if God didn't work without their permission, then then I'm excused from the consequences. I'm excused from the obligation to respond rightly. If, if He didn't get my permission to work, then, then I can just do my own thing. Because who does He think He is to do something without checking with me first. That sounds outlandish. By the way, it's such a blasphemous thought. But that is the idea of the religious leaders. They have control over religion. They have control over grace. They have control over truth. They are the ultimate mediators and dispensers of truth. And if a truth is inconvenient... If it seems that God did something, but it didn't fit in within their expectations, and He didn't get their permission, then they don't need to feel responsible to respond to it. And here's the thing. God didn't seek their permission to do what He said He was going to do all along. And since God didn't work to fit into their plan, then they believed that they were excused from having to respond to His grace. And listen, so many times we have a hard time accepting God's clear movement in a situation. When God does things as dramatic, as clearly visible, as rolling away a stone, we still, like the soldiers, have a hard time accepting that God was in it. It's easier we think to reject His work than to allow for it. If we allow for for that thing to be something that God was doing, if we allow for it, then we are not in control. And we need to respond, uh, we want to respond with, no, that can't be, I'm in control. But the right response is responding in a way that is humble and submissive. We might even take notes from Mary's and say we respond in fear and joy. But if we rise up in pride and reject God's work, then we think that we are free from the obligation to respond to His work. But listen, we are not free to reject a response from God. The second way in which we look at this conspiracy is we look at how it was constructed in verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, listen to the words of religious leaders and follow along, look at your own copy of the Scriptures and said, Tell people. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. By the way, think about the outlandishness of this lie. Here we're supposed to believe that soldiers are sleeping on duty when they know that they could be punished even by their life. But also, a stone is being rolled away. And maybe eleven disciples are there. And they're sleeping through it. It just is unreasonable. But anyways, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while they were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we know that we can bribe him too like we're bribing you. We can satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In essence here, the truth that is that is uh, the, the, the falsehood that is being propounded in this is ignore what you see and live like you want to believe. That is when God gives clear revelation, even confrontation to interrupt our path, we need to respond in humility, and even worship. Hopelessness is birthed by denying God's word and God's ways. Hopelessness is birthed by denying God's word and God's ways, they didn't need to have a conspiracy. That took a lot of work to come up with that. Cost a lot of money, cost a lot of effort. By the way, notice that about our lies, notice that about our self deception. That it, te- it tends to take a lot of maintenance. It tends to take a lot of attention. It-, it tends to be at a high cost, a high price to maintain our lives. So too, this is a common denominator in self-deception and ignoring what we see and living like we want to believe. Where do you find rescue? Where do you find help? Where do you find comfort if you deny that something significant significant of God's hand has taken place? The more we put off acceptance of God's providence, the more we despair, and the more despair we have in our suffering. Listen, there is a world of a difference. There is a life and death difference in suffering in hope and in suffering in despair, and likely, any of us who have walked the Christian walk any amount of time have felt the difference of suffering with hope or suffering with despair. Where will you find rescue? Where will you find comfort if you suffer in despair? But the second falsehood that was an an integral ingredient in these lives was that truth is relative to the goals that we have in mind for our life. That truth is relative, truth takes a co-pilot seat, or a second seat, second place, to my goals. If the truth is convenient, then I'll tell it and I'll live like it. But if the truth is inconvenient, then deny it. You are... Truth, and you are the author of truth. Affirmation of identity and belief is king in this mode of thinking. Affirmation of identity and belief is king in this kind of thinking. The kind of thinking that says truth is relative to my goals. My top goal in this line of thinking is affirmation. And I want my beliefs to be affirmed and confirmed. That's king. If what we think is going to happen and what happens is different, are we willing to follow God? And that's what's taking place here with, the, with, with these religious leaders. Is what they thought was going to happen and what did happen was not the same thing. the fact is, if God, we think in this way, is if God doesn't pet and affirm our counsel and wisdom, then we hold him in contempt. We hold God in contempt. God doesn't measure up to our standards because we're the ones who set the standards. We're the ones who set the expectations. We have all wisdom. We know what truth is. And we hold him in contempt. And really we believe the lie that power and money and convenience and acceptance and any number of things, it's all ours if we just deny the truth. If we just keep strapping the fig leaves to ourselves. If we just keep getting a little bit more comfortable inside the fig leaves, that's okay. We can deny truth. And we come to believe in this Self-preservation mode. We come to believe that we can't possibly have blessing and truth. We think that God's truth, because it doesn't measure up to ours, is accompanied by curse. And this is one of the devil's greatest wedges in, in, between uh, Christianity and, and unbelief, is that he says you can't have truth and blessing together. And he's constantly propounding the message that if you believe upon God, you will not have blessing. And this is the lie in which he had told Eve and Adam from the very beginning. You don't have everything there is. He's holding out on you. He's not as good as you think he is. You can't follow him and have blessing. Blessing. So eat. When we're preaching the gospel around the world, as we as Christians are preaching and living out the gospel, the fact is that there will always be an allurement to preach and to live out an incomplete gospel. As we share the good news, there will always be a temptation to leave, leave out the blessings and the truth of the gospel, one or the other. There will always be a temptation for us to water down things. There will always be a temptation for us to to bring an incomplete gospel. There will always be an allurement. Listen, there will always be an audience for a false gospel as long as the sun rises. There's always going to be places packed where a false gospel is preached. So there will always be an audience. So thirdly, Notice in verse number 15. Here we, be, we come to a, a self-awareness of the author, of the writer of scripture here, Matthew. In verse number 15 he says, so they took the money, they accepted this, this uh, conspiracy and they did as they were directed. So where did the conspiracy begin? It, it began really in the heart, but it began with the leaders who came up with the idea and they told the soldiers. Now listen, To this day, where do we come up with the conspiracy against the empty tomb? Matthew says, up until his day, it was the soldiers who told the story that Jesus was not risen from the dead as disciples took the body. And do you know that there are religions, world religions, who claim, and false teachers who claim that the disciples stole the body? And do you know where they came up with that idea? from the soldiers who came up with the idea from the religious leaders. And in Matthew's day, when he's preaching to the church, and he's pastoring the flock of God, the people have heard this lie. They have heard it. It's a common, a common thing. And, by the way, commonly accepted thing. And Matthew points this out to the people he's pastoring, that he's writing to in his, in his gospel here. And he says, you have heard this lie. Let me tell you where it came from. It's just from this back room deal. A dark alley deal. And do you know that Mark, Luke, and John actually don't record verses 11 through 15 in their gospels? Matthew is the only one who tells us of this back room bribery. Because Matthew is dealing specifically like a pastor, like an apostle, like a good disciple maker, with the unique challenges of his church, where some of them have become a little shaken in their faith because they're hearing a convincing story that maybe the tomb wasn't empty after all. Matthew explains that and the Spirit of God records that in our Bibles so that you and I today can understand we still see in our world today a conspiracy against the Gospel. At times it looks like the doubt of a resurrected man named Jesus. By the way, who would ever believe that a man could raise himself from the dead? Again, remember It is an impossibility if God doesn't do it. It is a very hard thing to tell someone, I know Jesus personally. Yes, that one that was crucified. Yes, that one that was buried. But he is risen and I know him. Listen, remember we talked two sermons ago how hard it would be for the Marys to tell the story of an empty tomb they would need the grace and power of God to go to the disciples and convince them that there was an empty tomb. You and I, too, need the grace and power of God to tell people about an empty tomb. So there's a continued conspiracy. And this shows that the church is susceptible to convincing lies. And in order to build a strong foundation in our, in our church... We must know prophecy. And you say, does that mean I need to know the whole book of Revelation? Does that mean I need to know how to parse out the book of Ezekiel and Daniel? Well, it does mean some of that, but let me just begin with the very essential part. It means remember, Jesus said, I will be like Jonah, and then Jesus is like Jonah. There's the prophecy. Know your Bible. Know your Bible so that you're not so easily convinced of lies. And listen, the lies are both external out there, but the lies are also in here, too. And know your Bible. Know your prophecy, because knowing prophecy will, will give you a solid foundation to know oh, God has fulfilled prophecy. And that gives me assurance that He's going to keep fulfilling prophecy. And I am. And you are. A literal fulfillment of prophecy if you're here today as a child of God. Secondly, know the prophet. Know the prophet. The church is susceptible to convincing lies, and the way in which to build a sure foundation is to know the one who prophesied. Know this one. Know Jesus. Search for him in the scriptures. Find him. And love Him and sit with Him and and listen to Him. Know Him for yourself. Not just scholastically and academically and theoretically and even theologically. But know Jesus personally. Pursue Him. Call Him by name and treat Him. Love Him. Let Him draw near. Sense His nearness. And listen to Him as He speaks to you. And let Him tell you of His love. And let Him tell you of His truth. And let him free you from the bondage of your self-scheming and lies. And thirdly, know the fulfillment of the prophecies. Know how it ends. And here Matthew ends with this. He shows us what had he started from the very beginning in Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, telling us there was this baby And he was sent from God to deliver the world from sin. And now, chapter 28, he says, and he did it. He finished it. Nothing left undone. Totally complete. Every part of everything he said he would do. He did it all. And that's how I'm leaving this book with you. So now he will say in a few verses, go and tell everybody, Jesus came and he did everything that was necessary and everything he ever said he would do. He did it all. Just go tell them. You don't even have to think about a lie. You don't even have to think about how they'll respond. I just want you to go and tell them. And so they will hear. I'd like for us to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 together. And the church of Corinth had been become affected by an insufficient teaching and belief on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It had invaded a church like Corinth. It can invade any church. And by the way, I believe we battle daily in our doubts or even our application of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And we're going to read this entire chapter, I want you to listen to the argument, I want you to listen to the hope, I want you to listen to the proclamation, the shameless display, the shameless dispensing of joy that the Apostle Paul has when he shares about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice He's saying, I'm taking you back to prophecy. I'm taking you to the prophet and I'm showing you its fulfillment. And He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how come some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when it says all things are put into subjection, It is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. And the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? but God just simply cannot fit into a box. It is in that truth that all of our hope lies that God doesn't fit into a box. Our faith is in the God who exceeds our expectations. Our faith is in the God who has raised His Son from the dead doing the impossible. The God of the impossible is our God, not just the God of the possible. He can create out of nothing God can die and God can live. He can forgive the most wretched sinners and all these truths say that He is God. The opposition to God and the Gospel can be felt both within His followers' doubting minds like you and I. And the opposition to God and the Gospel felt in our doubting minds is also as pervasive far as the curse is found there's opposition to God and His Gospel. The disciples like you and I would need to make room in their theology for a risen Lord. We do too. The risen Lord has everything to do with everything in our lives in a very practical way. There are many truths that flow out of the risenness of our Christ. Here are some, but take this as a homework assignment for yourselves to work on this week. Start the sentence this way He is risen, so. Fill in the blank. I'll get your pump primed. He is risen, so he is with God. He is risen, so he is with me, and I am not alone. He is risen, so he has infinite power. He is risen so He cares deeply about me and my suffering. He is risen just as He said, so I can trust Him when He says something. And there's so many more truths about the empty tomb. So you go on that homework assignment this week and you say, the risen Christ, what does that mean for me? But one final word before we close the message today. Christ knew that there would be unbelief. He knew the world would have great opposition driven by the powers of the evil one and the dark forces. The resurrection dealt a devastating blow to the devil's plans. And the world is the devil's realm. The devil is seeking to build a kingdom to himself and a risen Christ certainly doesn't fit into that kingdom. So the devil will inspire and he will conspire with evil men to try to thwart the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ knew this. Christ knew this. He knows this and he knew that it would be hard for disciples like you and I to believe from the very first moments. But what Christ also knows is that there is resurrection power in the telling of the gospel. Not only is the message the resurrection, but listen, the power of the, me- of the message is the resurrection. There is power in the telling of the gospel. There is power, resurrection power, in the preaching of the gospel of the gospel, life-giving, tombstone-rolling power in the telling of the gospel. Dead men will believe, doubters will be convinced, deceivers will be silenced. And so Jesus will be explaining that, that it is our great commission to be sent out to just Tell. To tell those near and to tell those far that there is a stone rolled away. And the only way to explain it is that the impossible happened. And that the impossible thing has everything to do with grace that can save and rescue us from death and the grave and hell itself. We ought to be telling that that resurrection can be ours when we turn away from our sin And put our trust in the one who said, he is, not that he does, he is the resurrection and the life. Child of God, this is our Savior. He is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray.